right. Uh, so today we are honored <laughs> to be talking with my dear friend, Natalie. Uh, we will be going over some things on cooperative farming, farming, things like that. Um, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me to yeah. talk with you. Um, just so all of you listeners know, Amy and I have a lot of wonderful conversations when we're out in the field working together, and we just felt like you guys needed to be a part of that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think this Here will be fun, and I'm excited. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for letting me come over. We're in Natalie's adorable tiny schoolie. The wood stove is going. Henry is sleeping. <laughs> what 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 else? We're drinking percolated cappuccino. Yeah. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Life is good. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> so thanks. Um, so maybe I know a lot about you. You're great, but maybe you could just talk a little bit about yourself to the listeners and what you feel you want them to know about you before we get deep dived into our conversations. Cool. Um, yep. So I'm Natalie. I just, uh, moved to Lawrence sort of by accident in the springtime. I came here to visit a person that I was talking to, as the kids say. <laughs> I was actually talking to him on the phone. And, um, then the pandemic hit and at the time I was teaching middle school and I didn't need to go back into the school to teach middle school so I just stayed here and it's been great and I was able to find some work at the farm that we both currently work on yeah um, but I have worked on a few different farms and agriculture projects um, before this I did I, I was coming from Louisville Kentucky and um, worked on a cooperative farm there and then also did some cooperative urban agriculture um, not projects are a better word for them than they were not market farms. Um, and then I've, I've worked at market farms in Detroit and then also in New Mexico, in Taos, New Mexico. So I'm super into farming and agriculture. Um, but I'm also, I pretty much have just tried to figure out how to get paid to be outside most of my, <laughs> my life. So, cause outside's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, even when I, I've done quite a bit of uh, I have a lot of experience teaching middle school and high school, and even then I was like, guys, let's go outside, and that's sort of how I got into agriculture, was started leading some youth gardening initiatives, and thought that was super fun, and wanted to learn more about it, so, um, awesome. so yeah. 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 And the projects that you're involved in in Lawrence, the farm that we work at, mm -hmm. um, and then how you got involved in the Lawrence community what, what's that garden called that we go to? The Community by Cork and Barrel? It's, I just, I just. What, is that called anything? It like, is, I feel like it's just the Cork and Barrel Community Garden, but I okay. don't know if it is. Yeah. That garden is, is, um, that was a really, uh, it's a really great garden, as you know, we've been there. Yeah. With me. Um, and that project was, uh, or its existence made me really happy because it, what it is, is a, pretty large community garden that instead of everybody having individual individual plots it's cooperatively gardened right um so which is cool because you have like pretty productive you have we have a really productive garden because you have a lot of people that have a lot of experience but then also people who are inexperienced can come in and learn a lot but also get a lot of food yeah. and that that's one of the barriers to 
gardening is people not knowing what to do. And so they get frustrated because they're like, man, my t- I don't, you know, I didn't get any tomatoes this year. Yeah. and I'm, My oh. kale got eaten. What the heck? Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. So Jason had been this, that person I was talking to, <laughs> he had been doing <laughs> a garden like that here for a few years with some of the, his friends. And, um, I, one of the things that I'm most proud of that I've done was a project like that in, in West Louisville. Um, we had a, a little bit bigger of a space that used it previously before it became like a cooperative, we called it a cooperative subsistence farm because we weren't farming, um, for market, but we were growing on a scale that a small farm was growing on. Um, and we just kind of organized people in the neighborhood and we all did it together. And there were a couple people that kind of led or facilitated the project because we had experience farming but um yeah the point was just to grow food for people and so that was that was what we did and we did it for two years and that was cool and so it was really exciting to find out that something very similar was happening here in Lawrence yeah next to the cork and barrel yeah and that's like <laughs> I feel like that project as being someone who's only li- I mean I've lived here for five or six years but I've really only been involved in the community for the past like two to three right because I was in college, and, you know, your first two years of college, you're like, screw this town, or whatever, <laughs> you know, I don't know, you're just not involved. Where are all the lakes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so after, after coming out of that, and, like, getting involved in the community, and wanting to be more associated in the Lawrence community, and the college community, I didn't even know. I always saw that garden, was like, wow, that's cool, I bet that's somebody's home garden, you know, that would be fun to be there. And then you were like, oh, it's over here. I was like, what? You know, like, that's a community space. That's really cool. Um, And that's, I mean, that's just a great example of how Lawrence works because there's that space, all the common ground sites. I mean, there's tons of them around town, and usually they're all full, and it's difficult to get a spot in. Yeah. Um, Which is is awesome, and it's great that, um, you know, folks like yourself and others can get involved and, you know, help spread some of that, like, it's like... After you've worked on a big farm, it's simple-ish gardening, you know? Yeah. Because it's, it's not that big. It's, so it's like, it's really not that hard, but it's, you just need some help. Right. You know, you need another hand It's more fun with help. You could totally do it yeah. by yourself. Like, if, you, if they were like, hey, may take over the night, night Street Cork and Barrel, you, you could do it totally. Yeah, it's like, okay, I but guess. But would it be fun? No. No. Yeah. Would you be able to eat all the food? No. Yeah. <laughs> Can I do it myself? Yes, but do I want to? No. no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's that's really cool. Yeah, that's a good, like, jump start into, into this town, I guess, and, like, um, it's a great place to be involved. Yeah, it, and that garden, my understanding is that it has been organized that way um, for over 20 years. So it's yeah. been a cooperative community garden for, for that long, and I think that could be cool to talk to those people that have been there the people that have been doing it the longest about that because I, I just think yeah it would be interesting to yeah they're definitely on my list yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool yeah they're they're great they're great folks um awesome well maybe we can kind of jump into uh how we both got into cooperative farming yeah um maybe we can just start off by like talking about what we like see cooperative farming as because cooperative farming is I feel like there's a lot of filler words that folks might use or it might be seen differently by others 
Um, so maybe starting off with that route, if you want to go first, then I can follow suit. Yeah, and I think that's a really good, that's a great prompt because I think that cooperative farming means different things to different people in different places. Yeah. And so my experience is, of course, of... (laughs) Well, of course, because you can see me and you know me, but yeah. <laughs> is that of a, you know, relatively privileged white lady who's born and raised in America. And so when I speaking about cooperative farming, this is like what I know from what I've experienced. But I also know that there's a lot of examples of cooperative farms in other places, specifically in Latin America, that I, I just sort of know, like, there's some really cool things happening there. Yeah. And I don't exactly know how. Um and I would love to someday learn about it. But yes. that's just one sort of example. But anyway, yeah. which is all to say that um, cooperative farming is, or to me, I feel like cooperative farming is a farm that is where the decision-making is uh, made by the group and the goals of cooperative farming are less rooted in capitalism, although it's important to be, to make money so that you can be solvent and stable, um, but more about land stewardship and creating community and less about, you know, just farming for market and making the, meeting that bottom line. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. I totally agree with you, especially about, um, I think just, like, the structures of farming are totally different, can be totally different with cooperative farming rather than just regular farming. Um, but I appreciate you speaking out about your, uh, like, white privilege, because I think that's a really um, important thing to mention. Um, I'm also, if you haven't seen my face <laughs> or my skin... She's white. I'm a white lady. <laughs> You know, and uh, also grew up very privileged, you know, and that's something that, you know, I've took for granted for majority of my life until the last few years. And also understanding that my people in this area, the people in this area were not my people and they did not show me how to do it. You know, it's not my uh, traditions. It's another you know, it's another land's, another culture's tradition of the land that we're in, right? Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, So I think that's an important thing to note. And I think in, as someone who recognizes that, and then now proceeding to work in the land, I think it's important to make sure that we take care of it correctly and take care of it in the ways that um, maybe the local cultures did. Um, and understanding those ways and trying to be as, uh, I guess, restorative as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and let land stewards, stewards, like you said. Um, and I think another thing about cooperative farming is um, the structures that are in place are really important. And the we'll, we'll get into a lot of these subtopics of cooperative farming. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the management style, the, you know, finance, the staff, uh, what's grown, and just, like, how everything is done on that, like, smaller molecular level Mm -hmm. is a lot differently at times than regular farming. Um, And I've worked on both 
cooperative and non-cooperative farms. And there's definitely, um, I mean, I don't have as much, much exposure maybe as you, but I've definitely felt the differences yeah. in my experiences, you mm-hmm. know? And, um, yeah, it's a great thing. It's a great thing because like you were saying about just that garden space, I could do, I could, you could have, you know, three acres of land and farm it all yourself and you'd be breaking your bones, you know, and it'd be blood, sweat and tears. And yeah, you could probably make money and bring it to market and this and that. Or you could have a great group of people that want to be there, like are active in the community and are like aware of the land that you're working with. And you could even still do that and send it to market and make money if that's your end goal. Yeah. Plus, I, I mean, and I think this is probably, I feel like the two most common topics that of, of like conversation between us are like just farm related stuff or just like eating and food. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like, it's just such a no brainer. Like people love food. And so, yeah. you know, cooperative farming is fun for a lot of reasons. It's hard. Um, but that is such a wonderful thing that sort of unites us humans is that we like to eat and we like to like share food with people. And, um, I think that cooperative farming is really special farming in a, in a cooperative way. There's lots of businesses that can structure themselves to be cooperatives, but I think that's one part of cooperative farming that makes it so special is the food part. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of CSA is, you know, you, you're a part of a CSA, which is Community Supported Agriculture, for those who don't understand that acronym, and it's where you pay a lump sum, $200, $300, and you get either a half share or a full share for the whole entire summer, and you get a weekly bag or box of vegetables, sometimes add-ons of bread, chicken, eggs, things like that, sometimes not, depending on your budget, and, you know, in that CSA share with the farms, you're getting the food directly they will have, you know, recipes. Like, this week we have, or a newsletter, like, this week we have tons of cabbage. You know, what does one do with cabbage? Yeah. And so it's, even with that, is, like, connecting the community through food, and then, you know, here's here's a great recipe that we love to use with this. Try it out yourself. Let us know how you like it. Mm-hmm. And then getting the community involved in, oh, I've never had a cabbage before. You know, I've never had a red cabbage or, you know, tatsoi, which is an Asian green. And, you know, how it, like, dealing how to work with it and eat it is, is great. Yeah. And that's really awesome because people need to be nourished, especially See. nowadays. Yeah. I think it's fun for both sides. It's, like, fun for the growers to, to share that with people. And it's really fun. I think people really enjoy uh, the adventure of eating. Yeah. Like, yeah, like I'm going to make this, this new thing. And, um, so yeah. yeah, that's a super cool. One of the coolest things about the 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 most Laminga was a cooperative farm that I worked at in in Louisville, Kentucky, and that was like the cooperative farm that I that was the most like a market farm. We were farming for money. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but the one of the cool things about it was that we had um, farmers that were from the area, Louisville, Kentucky, and then we had a farmer from El Salvador and a farmer from Jamaica. And we all were sort of in charge of different uh, parts. And so the farmers that weren't from the United States grew all this stuff that I had never even heard of. Um, And so that was really fun to be on both sides of that conversation. Because usually as a farmer, you're the one that's like, let me educate you about bok choy. But 
there yeah. I was, and I was the farmer, and I was like, I don't know what this food is, yeah, but it sure does taste good, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, stir like, fries my farmer great. friend yeah. cooks it like this. Um, so yeah. that was a pretty cool outcome of one of the cooperative farms that I worked at. Yeah, for sure, totally. Yeah, yeah. When I worked at Pendleton's, which is here in Lawrence, um, they just had recipe cards. And oh, your, yeah. each bag would have, like, five or six different recipe cards, and it would be, like, beet salad or beaten cabbage salad or, you know, this or that. And yeah. That was really great. They also have a lot of older folks in their CSA, and, you know, a recipe is what a lot of older folks are used to using. Mm-hmm. They have those Rolodexes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they got those big old cookbooks, you know? Yeah. And so that was really cool, and I really loved that. And, I mean, when I was at Sacred Sun, the cooperative farm that I worked at, they had herbs... And there was one week where everybody got fresh milky oats, which is really great. And milky oats is is just a stage. So when you're growing oats, it goes through tons of different stages, and you pick it when it's milky. So, like, you can squeeze the oat, and then, like, this milk substance came, comes out. And it's before it's, like, edible or harvestable for actual oats. So it's a very, like, specific time frame. And uh, so they put that in the CSA and that's I mean that's cool too because Mm -hmm. getting herbs involved like that is really great and then to be a member of that and getting vegetables and then an herb adding that element to it is I mean that's it's advanced a little bit you know not everybody might know what to do but yeah um, it gets a uh it gets you into a different you know mindset of what you're eating and what you're putting in your body. Yeah. And I, I wonder if I feel like we're going to see a lot more of that. Like, I think that you're right. Like maybe five years ago, I, one of the th- things that's hard about CSAs is people who are intimidated by new things yeah. struggle with that because you don't get to pick what you get. You just get this bag every week. Right. And so I, I do think though that we're going to see more of like herbal wellness type things be being more accepted um because we're in a pandemic yeah. <laughs> people are really thinking about that but everybody I think it's, an elderberry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Learn about what it does for you and yeah um so i think that's super cool that they're that they're doing that at sacred sun i got some i got me some milky oats from sacred sun yeah <laughs> it's good, good. It yeah. Really <laughs> yeah um so you were talking about laminga laminga mm-hmm. is was that the first cooperative farm you worked on uh yes so the it was the first, yeah, the first, like, market farm that was cooperative, and, but, like, the, the story of Laminga is started, like, way before we became, like, a farm. Um, I got, I think I was telling you before, I got interested in agriculture because I just was, like, trying to figure out how to be outside with my students, and I was yeah. like, well, there's a lot, I'm a science teacher, so there's a lot of science that can be taught outside. Oh, yeah. natural sciences, for sure. Yeah, especially in a garden. And that sort of morphed into me um, working for a nonprofit and doing like after school programming in like a pretty big um, cooperative garden. This was like the first version of what we have already talked about, which is going on at the Ninth Street Cork and Braille that I'd ever been a part of was like, okay, let me try to like build this co- giant cooperative garden because it was in a, a food desert um, in, in West Louisville. And um, it was a, so that, yeah, so that was the first thing that sort of got me interested in in cooperative farming. I kind of, when I started doing it, I I was like (laughs) pretty ignorant. And I was just like, I'm going to teach all these people in the neighborhood how to garden. And I didn't think anything about it being a co-op. Although I had lived in housing cooperatives before. And I I really 
felt like it should have been a no-brainer, but I definitely came in there being like, I'm going to show you guys how to do stuff. And then, you know, as I, and I moved to that, that neighborhood, the garden was right across the street from where I was living. And as I got to know the neighbors better, they're like, uh, we already know how to garden. <laughs> we just aren't landowners. Like, you li- like, this is the hood. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, well, shoot, I got land now. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> um, but like you could probably learn some stuff from us and I did so it was a humbling experience but what I realized was like um, people are pretty like open to being organized and, and mobilized they just need to feel like you know they, they're going to be successful doing it um, and so the housing nonprofit that I was working for had this huge um, apartment building that had a, like tons of land that surrounded it that was otherwise being managed by their property management. And so they were like, well, if you, you know, if you guys want to take care of this lawn, essentially, then that's awesome for us. So it was pretty cool that they let us do that. But yeah, so we yeah. started like a, basically a cooperative neighborhood garden. Um, and so in, that was cool. In Louisville. Yeah, in Louisville. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, but I felt like at the end of that experience, um, I felt like I didn't know enough about agriculture. So I moved to um, New Mexico, (laughs) which was a completely random decision. Um, That's a great place. It is an awesome place. It's unlike anywhere I've ever been, you know, long-term for a whole season. The environment is totally different. Uh, Yeah, especially where you come from. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know that area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I moved there to to do a farming internship, and that farm was, it was not a cooperative, but um, I learned a lot, Um, that farmer, he is he just turned 70 this year and he's very experienced organic farmer and I was pretty grateful to learn from him but there's the the region that I was living in 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 New Mexico with north of Taos was is sort of like (laughs) outside of San Francisco had like the highest number of communes per capita in the 60s (laughs) yeah so there are all these like communal people there yeah, so, so they that was led and there they were. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they've just been there since the since the sixties. Um, so, so so I learned more about farming then, and then I went back to Louisville, and some of the people that I had met through that project um, in the community garden had um, started cultivating a, a pretty large urban space. It's um, that's called the People's Garden. It's still being cultivated right now um, in Louisville, and then we had been offered land by. Um, a family who had their the sort of patriarch in the family had wanted to be able to give people access to land that normally wouldn't have it um so we farmed at these two different sites um under the under the business laminga farming cooperative yeah um, and we did that for two seasons um so that was yeah it was pretty cool it it was yeah it was cool it was like we had to build, like, (laughs) we had to, I learned a lot about structure. You've been using that word a lot. And I think that I learned that it's so important that structures are in place and specifically like how you make decisions cooperatively from the beginning. And we learned that like the hard way we kind of were like, we all just like love each other and we'll just like figure it out. Yeah, it'll be fun. And then it turns out, you know, everybody's personalities are wild, wildly different and everybody's farming experiences are really wildly different. And that's a big deal when, you know, you think one something should be done one way, but somebody else has an experience that, no, it shouldn't be done a different way. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that was Laminga and, <laughs> um, 
yeah, it was a good, it's still, there are still, um, one of the farmers that I worked with is still farming um, at Laminga, but she's kind of just doing it by herself, and it's because we, um, one of the bummer about not having access to land and being dependent on people that are like, sure, you can use our land, is like, sometimes they decide, oh, never mind, you, we're going to put a shopping mall here now, so we are, the amount of land that we had became much smaller and it was not really feasible for us to like uh have a business for four adults that would be successful so that's, and on a smaller that's piece happened. of land yeah oh that sucks yeah i've mm -hmm. definitely felt that feeling before what would even like would that be like the industrialism of our country that created that problem because i think it is because <laughs> like when I was helping out at the Bonbon Garden, it's a restaurant in Lawrence. Oh, God, so heartbreaking. And it was great. And I took it over for, like, a little over half of a summer. And, you know, they were like, oh, well, the thing is, is that we're going to, someone's going to put a structure here. So the garden is going to be no more. Mm -hmm. It's like, what? You know? <laughs> and thinking of Lawrence, it was like, where's, where's this, where's the sign up? Where's the petition? Right. You know, like. <laughs> Is anybody care? Does anybody care about this? And by the time I heard about it, unfortunately, uh, my manager was like, "I'm really sorry, but honestly, like the decision is already made. Like the point that we got to, like it's it's too far. It's too far gone. This is, like money's been put on the table or something. You know, the city has accepted it, and that was now it's going to be an apartment building. And you know, I saw it uh, the other day, and I was like, "Oh, there's this pavement where Amy's." Yeah, it's like I took a video. I don't know if I posted it on my Instagram or if it's was a story, but I'll be sure to put it in, and everybody can look at it. But there's a video of like this front step had uh, shiso, and then this, there was like wooden steps that walked into the um, gated area. And all that was left when they were destroying it. I came back from a weekend. I was gone. And my friend was like, hey, have you seen the bonbon garden? And I was like, oh, I've been waiting for this day for like six months, you know. And it's just like I've been able to, you know, still gather things that I didn't think I could get before. And now I could now, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, then, then they destroyed it. And uh, all that was left was the front wooden step and the shiso. And it was like me panning steps construction destruction oh. it's like ah oh it's so <laughs> why? sad why why you do this yeah it was hard well it was hard. <laughs> so I, I feel you in response to your sort of question that you posed which is like what you know what is it about our society that these things keep happening yeah <laughs> um and i would say that there's but but like it the most basic answer to that is like <laughs> i mean this is the radical left you're talking to, Amy. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. but I would I say that ca <laughs> capitalism is, it's not, that's like kind of, if you want to like think about things in a binary way, which we generally don't want to do, but I think capitalism and cooperative stuff are on two different, yes. two, they're like they're the opposites yeah. of each other. And like I think if more things were, more institutions were cooperative that we would see less things like that happening where things are just destroyed and, and it feels like, you know, you, you don't have a lot of power and control. And that's one of the things about cooperatives is it's about kind of taking power back and redistributing it to people. Yeah. Dispersing. Yeah. Um, 
It's a good point. It sucks. It's a really <laughs> good point. Yeah. But capitalism totally... I mean, like, stinks. It sucks. Guys, it, it really does. Sorry, if you enjoy it, uh, maybe you should find another podcast. Uh, <laughs> I love you anyways. Or maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should listen and... Just be open. Hear, hear what we have to say, all right? Because we're here. And we're talking. Um, yeah, it's okay. We'll, we'll make it work. Yeah. We'll, we'll find more cooperative farms. Yeah. Um, so when you were in New Mexico, you lived on that farm. Was it... You said two seasons? I just lived there for a year. So, okay. like, a little bit more. I lived there a little longer than the whole yeah. of the season. But, um... What... Well, I know... Did you have your best then? No, I didn't. I, okay. So I got this bus when I was working at Laminga because we had two sites. We had an urban a site in West Louisville that was like an urban farm. And then the other site was out in the country. <laughs> and I was like, I need, a, I need to have a, you know, on-farm housing. So I just bought this bus. But um, in New Mexico, I didn't have a car. Great idea. <laughs> and that was a fun... That's like... I'm a big fan of the, like north taos area because there's a bus there's like hardly anybody that lives up there in the mountains but ten taos has like probably five thousand people but there's a bus that goes up the mountain and stops twice a day and drops you off like everywhere you go so i just rode Perfect. the rode the greyhound in albuquerque and then got on the rail runner which is like the train that goes between all the major cities in new mexico and then got on, got on the city bus and rode it up this mountain it's real weird to be riding, like, a city bus, which you, you know, kind of only think about riding in a city. Yeah, and you're like, this isn't, yeah, I'm in a mountain now, okay. <laughs> then I got dropped off at the bus stop where there was nothing, except yeah. a bus stop in a mountain, and then, uh, the farm picked me up, but then I realized I could actually walk to the bus stop from the farm, so that was, that was cool. That was probably neat for later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I didn't have a car, and, um, the, and, but we live, all lived in, um, there was a farmhouse that was like a double wide trailer that he had converted into his farmhouse and that's where we did all of our like cooking and um we had a solar shower that was pretty cool um that we built together and then we each of the farm interns had eight by ten unheated <laughs> cabins which is why i was so, i've been like motivated to put this wood stove in my bus for years now because i was like that was really cool that sucked yeah i want to have access to heat all the time <laughs> yeah and with a wood stove i mean people might be some folks might not agree with the fact that wood is regeneratable it's like a, but yeah at the end of the day uh compared to like gas we have accessibility to wood and like i guess we have accessibility to gas but like you can like forage for wood totally <laughs> technically i mean some may say, and I agree with this, that, like, it's, it's a, it is important to leave the wood in forests because it's important for the ecosystem and, like, wood will break down and then become soil, right? Mm -hmm. But there's other, you know, you could find, people get rid of wood all the time and you can have it. Or you can just buy it. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's, um, uh, you know, I, that's funny that you bring that up because I have, like, uh, I would, if someone asked me if I cared about the environment, I would say yes, I'm quite passionate about environmental stewardship. Yeah. But then I, and, but then sometimes I'll, I have some friends that, that we're very aligned in our values and they'll be like, I'm not coming to your, like, backyard bonfire because it's, you know, you're contributing to climate change. <laughs> and I'm like, like, that is true. And I'm not, like, hating on people for, like, if you, you know, I have a lot of respect for people that, like, 
know what they believe in and they stick to it. Yeah, um, like a bonfire. Unless I haven't heard that. Yeah. Yeah, it's happened to me a few times. And, or, <laughs> um, and then I'm sure that those same people feel this way about the, the wood stove. And I yeah. think that it's there's a spectrum of, like, um, shit that's not good for the environment. And this is, is probably not the best, but I also don't think it's the worst. So It's better than a house. <laughs> and house heating and gas heating like it's you know like let's work with what we got yeah and yes I totally agree like you know maybe buying wood or something like that isn't the best but is it better than having pumping your bus with a propane heater or you know other things that are I feel more a little bit more finite right um is there, you know, is there even studies that have these numbers that we're, like, thinking about, you know? Maybe. Well, there's a lot of, and we're sort of, like, getting sidetracked, but we yeah. also both, the, <laughs> we both love cooperative farming, we both have buses, so <laughs> yeah. this is normal for all of you listeners out there, um, but there are some, some people that have tried to, like, quantify people who live nomadically and how much what their footprint is like yeah and uh, there a lot of people have these so anyway so that's out there yes somewhere. whatever okay yeah. moving on yeah <laughs> um but that was a good tangent um so i'll talk about how i got into co- cooperative farming um it's not i mean it's just everybody has a different story and everybody has gone through different things but i started at a farm uh pendleton's it was really great it was two or three years ago I don't know, whatever, in that frame. And uh, it was really great, and they do things, like, very traditionally, just, like, original vegetable farmers in this area. They've been doing it for quite a few years. Karen and John are awesome, and they're really great, and they're super connected in the community. I mean, they have 100-plus, I think, CSA, just, and it's just their farm that's funding it, which is great. Um, And that, honestly, is, was, I don't regret being on that farm, even though now I don't, uh, accept, or not, not accept, but don't agree with all the principles that they have, that's still okay, you know, I don't agree with monocrop farms, but they're still here, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, that's just my opinion, and everybody does things differently, but, um, for a first farm, that was solid, because I, I got to know how to do everything, and because their farm was so successful, um, they did do some spraying, you know, I don't know if they'll tell you that or not. That's just my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so the produce was really great, and it turned out really, really well, and their soils were pretty good. Um, but I was very naive and didn't really know a lot about um, the uh, re- land regeneration at that time mm-hmm. and restoration and just how to deal with things. So it was it was very early on, um, but that was really great. I really got to understand that, but there was defi- it was definitely not cooperative just regular old farm um and then i started at jill's and that was really great and i really got to understand just uh organic farming and how farming can be done differently but still effectively Mm -hmm. and that's pretty great and that was super super awesome and really kind of just like pushed me in the right direction um while i was finishing up my degree and things like that and then i um i stumbled upon sacred sun um, in Perry, just outside of Lawrence, and that was really great. Uh, I lived there for, like, six months, I think, this past season, um, and then had to, 
had to head out for various reasons. Um, but it was really great. I was interested in cooperative farming just because having worked at, I guess I also, in between then, I worked at Bon Bon, the Bon Bon Garden after Jill's. And I've been doing gardening my whole life, just, you know, in a backyard or whatever, you know. And um, I think working at Sacred Sun, uh, learning a lot, understanding a lot about cooperative farming styles is very eye-opening. I did a lot of uh, I wouldn't say research, but I definitely looked into a lot of other cooperative farms and how they did it and understood that. Good morning, Henry. You woke up. Um, Natalie has an adorable dog named Henry that is napping. You just woke up. <laughs> oh, woke you up, buddy. Sorry. You can sleep. It's okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, Sacred Sound was really great. Very eye-opening. Um, and it was really interesting especially like during that time when I started there that's when I met you and hearing another cooperative farming perspective from yourself and kind of diving in deeper and seeing how others do it and asking a lot of questions and understanding a lot more of how it's done it you know taught me a lot um, and I think I was mainly interested in cooperative farming because I realized that it can't be done by yourself and one person cannot do it and being myself being someone who is like very has a lot of generator energy of like let's do this you know like we got this we can you know we can get this done you know and like cranks I like to crank things out and go ham um that's just how it works and <laughs> uh so seeing that in farming and then also seeing it done and seeing the management style of non-cooperative farms it's like well why would you not have it be cooperative you know and some people just don't align with that and that's okay but mm -hmm. for me personally it was that's when I really decided it's like I think that this is the correct path to be on and I wouldn't want it any other way um, it's, it's also I think cooperative farming is a little bit some people are timid of it because um, you know the word cooperative is like oh, I can't do this by myself, you know, independence, independence is great, um, but also it's, it's not a cry for help, you know, you can do it by yourself, but it's, it's great to have help, and help is really nice to have, and I think sometimes it's hard for some folks to understand that they can't do it all by themselves, and that, uh, you know, I think it's hard. It's hard, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's hard, like, in a day-to-day -day life to say that. Even, right. you know, if, if especially nowadays with, I mean, there's higher mental illness now than there ever has been. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, especially during COVID and realizing, like, I can't do this by myself. Who can I reach out to? Who is my support system? Um, just applying that in, like, a cooperative farming or just a farming aspect is, uh, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think what you're you're speaking to a little bit is in like the what I think is some of the the underlying differences between cooperative farms or cooperative ventures and then a, a non-cooperative farm are that there's a difference in in like your core values. So, yeah. You know, just an organic farm like the one I worked at in New Mexico, which was wonderful and I learned so much and I you know, I loved it out there. Um, 
but that he never set out to his goal was to make money as a farmer i mean he is cap a capitalist which you heard me like be like oh because he's just this kooky guy that just is so good at organic farming and astrology that it's like hard to uh, to say that out loud but that is what he is he's like i'm here to, this is a business that i'm trying to make right, money right and and that's that's, a, that's okay that's you okay know? and and it is still hard to do by yourself most people who most farms who are structured like that uh not all like but most of them are usually a, a couple of people and they have to kind of share those responsibilities because farming is a full-time full lifestyle job right but you know so the, the values of those farms are really different from like a cooperative farm which is like we're not making money because we're trying to make money we're you know we're trying to like build community and we're yeah. trying to um re restore this land yeah and we're trying to eat good food like that's yeah. that's sort of in my experience that's those are the differences and i lean more like yeah definitely <laughs> more into the like building community side of things yeah yeah was it easier or more difficult to build community or at least um, also have space and build community because that's sometimes it's hard yeah in the sense of you living on the farm like was that was that difficult for you or was that because you're you know living on the farm and working on the farm which is like 24 yeah. 7 with these people and if you didn't have a car you know I'm talking about in New Mexico in New Mexico yeah well so in New Mexico one of the things that I'm good at and it's probably because I've spent so much of my life with middle school kids <laughs> is like I'm a pretty good mediator yeah and like I like that's sort of the role I fall into is like okay guys let's work it out you know yeah and um or organizers like when there's not conflict what I think what I find myself doing is organizing people and so I did a lot of that in New Mexico and the reason I did that is because I had lived in cooperative housing where you and you also now live in a cooperative house where it's and that those are when I lived in cooperative housing, I was pretty young and that was really formative for like sort of how I look at the world. And I thought, well, of course we're going to eat dinner together. That's like what we're doing. We're living together. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it was me that was like, who wants to cook on Monday? <laughs> who wants to cook on Thursday? Yeah. Um, but also um, when we did have conflict, which you are inevitably going to do when you live with anybody and especially yes. when you're farming and you're yes. tired and people are just you know crankier when they're tired and all that um so I ended up started doing a little bit of that but I felt like um it was a little I would say there was a little bit less conflict in New Mexico because ultimately Daniel farmer Daniel was the boss so it was like even if he was like doing something that we felt like was like you know every time there everybody has that moment where your boss tells you to do something and you kind of think like I think like I could be doing this differently or I think I could do this better in a different way but we that was the expectation from the get-go was like he was always gonna have the last call and it was fine and you know most of his calls were totally fine and the ones that weren't were just like you know chalk it up to like nobody's perfect yeah okay <laughs> yeah. um at Laminga because I had had a lot of experience living on farms already and also living in cooperative housing I, I made an intentional choice to not um to be at the farm part-time mm, um that's nice yeah so and and i was it created a little bit of conflict with some of the other people that were there because they were like 
and they're right. I was in a privileged place to be able to be like, I only need to do this part time. Um, two of the people that we farmed with had children, and so they were like, we really need to make this work because our, our kids need to eat, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think that was just the right choice for me, and I think that because even though I, I had the privilege to be able to work there part time, I had another job part time, but that was just, you know, a little bit less stressful. Um, just, you know, waiting tables and bartending. Um, because I was able to remove myself, then I, when things got, we did have, we had quite a bit of conflict at Laminga, and it wasn't like ugly where people were like fighting, it was just we got to a lot of places where we didn't know how to move forward, and that became my job, was to figure out how to move forward because I was like able to one, I'm a good mediator, but two, I, I decided early on, like, I'm going to create space for myself because I think this could get um, tense. Yeah. And it was, I think that if you talk to everybody, well, I know because I've talked to everybody since we stopped Laminga, it, that, in that iteration of Laminga at least, about the experience that we all grew from it, um, and it just sort of, reinforce the idea that I've already spoken to that it's just so important to have decision-making structures in place and that everybody agrees on this is how we make decisions and when it's made that that's the decision and that's just what it is yeah. <laughs> um, and other structures too but we didn't have that at Laminga and I think we would all say now that like yeah that <laughs> yeah we should have done that <laughs> I feel like that kind of joins into our conversation of like discussing management styles yeah totally um and it's hard, you know, no matter if it's, uh, I mean, we kind of, you, you, before we started recording, talked about, uh, like, referred to a restaurant as a farm, mm -hmm. or, like, how those systems could be applied in another system, um, and, I mean, for any organization, restaurant, business, systems are going to be difficult one to put in place and also to keep them in place mm -hmm. and also to distribute the work mm -hmm. and the needs and um it's when it comes to farming it's it's just interesting and it's it's hard to put them in place and i think for some organic farms it's difficult to keep them going mm -hmm. and uh kind of goes, I feel like a, some of it is involved with just, um, being also, I don't know, am I a radical leftist? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> kind of. Whatever. Be careful. <laughs> yeah. <Thank you. laughs> but, uh, um, but like, I think a lot of us just in this day and age are affected by capitalism, mm -hmm. period, whether you know it or not. And I think, um, it's hard for some folks to step back from that viewpoint mm -hmm. and have structures in place that don't resemble that. Uh, and that's where I've seen a lot of the problems. Um, and also the, oops, excuse my uh, finger pop, but <laughs> um, the, I've also noticed the, um, the, the disbursement of leadership mm -hmm. can also be difficult. That I, and I think that, like, what you're saying, we we both we both have experiences with in situations that should have been cooperative or were explicitly 
you know, the group said, this is a cooperative thing that we're doing, you know? Yeah. And then there's, you know, a person, there's conflict between people. Right. And, um, what I think that comes down to and what I think I hear you saying is like, and what I think just because I'm an anti-capitalist and maybe I'm biased and that's why I think this, but when you have, so for example, at Laminga, we had a lot of conflict and when I sort of zoom out and look at it, it's because you had people coming to the farm and working together. We didn't have very good conversations about equity before. And so there were some people that came to the farm with a bunch of money and those people had money because they were privileged and yeah. it was, you know, easy. And some people didn't have so much privilege to where they were like, Hey, I know about farming, but I don't have any capital to invest in this farm. Right. And that's the system that we have to work with here in, in the United States is like, you gotta buy land with money. You gotta yep. buy a tractor with money. Yeah. And so those people that are able to do that are given this entitlement from the beginning because they're the landowners or they're the people that own the tractor and that creates conflict with the other people. And that's not, you, how can a cooperative exist in that? You know, like it's, yeah. it's almost like there's nobody to blame. Like it's not, you know, their fault that they had $20,000 spent on a John Deere. Like, and it's also not this yeah. other person's fault that they never had the opportunity to acquire $20,000. Yeah. But those two people are going to have conflict because right. the, of the, the power distribution there. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I just felt like that's important to name that. And I think that's, that can trickle down into like the management style at a, any sort of cooperative venture, but definitely in, in farming, like the, that aspect of like, who's, whose is it really? Yeah. How much, you know, really can permeate the whole culture of, of a farm. And I just, man, I don't, it's, uh, yeah, that stuff's hard for me to square because I just, I'm like, people shouldn't own land. <laughs> yeah. But I understand that people do. And so they, I also understand that their perspective is really different. So I don't know. Yeah. It's hard. And it's hard to also feel that way and know that, um, not that I'm, uh, don't think that positive change can't happen, but mm -hmm. it's, you know, knowing that it's probably not going to happen that we can all just like have all the land and also yeah. that like the percentage <laughs> of land that is even able to be farmed is decreasing day by day. I mean, both of us have been affected by industrialism of like buildings being built on farmland. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's scary, yeah. you know? I mean, yeah, I'm scared about climate change, but like, am I ever going to have uh, ability to like, are we going to run out of farm space? Mm -hmm. Um, that's scary, but that was a kind of side note. But, um, I think when it comes to the management and how the farms are ran, um, I think in order to establish something successful, just regular conversation needs to be had. Mm -hmm. And I think every single time you get new staff or a new season or whatever, even old staff, you know, continuing for however many years, I think it's important to kind of, you know, step back after the season if you have the ability to step back, if whether that's a weekend, a week, or a month, you know, reflect and figure out how you want to move forward. Uh, because 
you're just going to stay in the same place if you don't. I mean, positive growth, growth can happen whenever in any certain case, but I, I feel uh, that that is like important, especially for cooperative farms, uh, mm -hmm. because conversation, whenever anything is cooperative, I mean, just in general, I think conversation is a necessity. And uh, in order for things to be done uh, communally and uh, in the right way that everybody feels comfortable with, it just needs to be talked about. Yeah. You know? Totally. I, I like, I totally agree. And, and that is that role that I ended up sort of become, like having to be that facilitator at Laminga yeah. was because people weren't having conversations. And what I realized was, it was like, oh, I'm talking to everybody. Yeah. Because I just like everybody. Yeah. <laughs> just like you. You're like, I like talking to people. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, totally. I realized that, you know, person A and person B are not talking to each other. Um, right. about what they're doing and so it's it's so important and I, I like I have I, I had a friend recently who's in a cooperative business but not a, it's not a farm but it's a cooperative business and there's been a little you know conflict and conflict is normal but I gave them like this template that I used to use when I was in like an open relationship and I tell I always tell people like business relationships are like open relationships you have to talk yeah. a lot <laughs> and that's how it will be easy for everybody and the I think people don't like doing that because it makes them uncomfortable but I, I just wish more people would be open to it just just like I'm just like give it a shot for like a month or whatever you know try having hard conversations with your business partner your you know your actual love partner or whatever yeah your roommates and your cat. see how your cat <laughs> your dog I mean I had a really hard conversation yesterday about how we shouldn't eat compost out of the compost pile. I'm sorry, Emily. God damn it. I'm sleeping now. But uh, it just pays off so much when pe when you have those conversations. But but the thing that, the key is that both people are open to it. Like, and and if, they're, if both sides aren't open, then it's not a super fruitful conversation. But if you can get a group of people that are open to having hard conversations and, you know, being outside of their comfort zone, the payoff is, you know, enormous. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> I totally agree. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's just, like, a good way to deal with a lot of things. But I think our society has also taught us in a way that that feels uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, we don't we don't need to go into that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what were, like, how were your days structured um, at the farms? that you worked at or maybe I mean whichever one you want to highlight yeah well I I guess I, I would say that like um the farm in New Mexico was very structured um we got up and did the same like you know we had started it depended on how cold it was what time we would start because it was we were farming at 8,000 feet so it would regularly get like pretty cold yeah <laughs> even in like June um but you know we'd start out and do the same thing like in the morning, we had to roll up the sides of the greenhouses. We had to roll them up down every night because it was never going to be warm enough yeah. at night up there. Yeah. Um, and then we would get ready for harvesting in the same way and get the same tools out. And then the farmer Daniel would then kind of put put us in groups of like, you do this, you do that. And we did the same stuff up until lunch. And then we had lunch. And then we, depending on the day it was, did a different thing after lunch. And he had, you know... He's been doing it for a long time, and he had his systems down 
um, and they were really effective. Um, yeah, so that's great. That was how it was in New Mexico. Um, and then let me go. We had no systems, <laughs> so we were just and that that wasn't like anybody's fault, but we were just kind of like Chill. shooting from the hip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like oh, I think and uh, and that was like a good good for me because I I'm like a systems person. I'm a, my mood is in Virgo. I like I like love systems, um, and it was good for me to learn how to. If you get too wrapped up in that, then you can if something happens outside of your system, then you can be very anxious yeah and so it was chaotic yeah, yeah so so that like level of like chill was pr pretty good for me but then not all, really super good for production but again in a, in a cooperative it's not the end goal is not always like the highest yield um and so we we had to do some that was sort of what most of our conflict was about was trying to figure out that happy medium where we could have more open flexible days but also the needs of our of the land were getting met. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, great. So. Yeah, well, I can d talk about Moon on the Meadow. Um, yeah. I mean, d it depends on the day. And I'm not also not there every day. Mm -hmm. So some days different than others. But we get there, have a morning meeting, and harvest right away. Clean. Sometimes you're <laughs> in the wash pack on some days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I feel like we harvest, clean, pick veggie, veggies in the morning, and then afternoons or early, you know, before or after lunch, we either get started on tasks or don't. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a pretty solid system, and also trying to disperse more tasks along among all of us um, as the season progresses and we get more comfortable. I feel like that's a good system. Mm -hmm. um, at Sacred Sun, it was it reminds me of uh, Laminka because. It was, we, I would show up and not know what was going on, and we ended up talking about it, and that was great, um, but, you know, I obviously knew what was going on, but it wasn't, uh, maybe vocalized, mm -hmm. um, but that, we just kind of, you know, we'd talk to Jake, and he's like, well, you know, today we're digging out potatoes, and, you know, we'd have a CSA, so we'd take care of the CSA, and then, um, we only worked for five hours at a time, so that was, we didn't really have any, like, lunch breaks or anything. Lunch wasn't really done, and so the, it was really, really hard, because I worked at Moon on the Meadow and also worked at Sacred Sun, so it was also a part-time venture, kind of like what you were describing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was, it was just really weird, because I'm very used to that structure of, knowing what I was going to do, like we have a whiteboard and we have tasks, sometimes our names next to them, which is great. I love mm -hmm. that system because it helps us all know what we were going to do and crank it out and get her done, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so that unknownness was really hard to adapt to in the beginning because I'm so used to the other way around. Um, and Pendleton's was like, they did things similarly to Jill, mm -hmm. um, in the sense of like a board, writing it down, knowing what we're going to do. Uh, which was great, and uh, so yeah, it's it's really interesting to adapt to different farm systems and different like management styles. Um, different, it's all about different types of people that you're working with, and that everybody's different, and just not getting caught up in like annoyance, mm -hmm. I guess, of that person, and just kind of letting it be. 
Um, and then if it does become a bigger issue, then, you know, try and deal with it as best as you can. That's right. Some advice there, you know? Yeah. If you are in a situation like that, um, talk to, talk to your coworkers, see how they feel, and, um, just start those conversations. If you don't feel having conversations with your boss, then talk to your coworkers. Mm -hmm. If you don't feel have comfortable talking with your coworkers, then try and find a close support person um, and try to figure it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the day-to-day -day structures are, I feel like, all fairly similar, but in the terms of management, um, it can get different. And I think a lot of the times you don't really know it until you're in it. Mm -hmm. And you can't really feel it until you're there. Yeah. You yeah. Because <laughs> everybody, I mean, everybody has a different energy and a different, I guess, aura, you know? Totally. But they do, you know? Everybody will communicate differently and say things differently, and sometimes you just got to do it to feel it. It's, yeah, it's true. I One thing, and I hope you don't feel like I'm projecting too much on you, but one thing that I think that we both have in common is, like, what I've noticed from you that I, I identify with, too, is, like, you'll go into a situation and you're, like, start out being really optimistic. And so, like, you're, like, you see the really good things about whatever the situation is. Yeah. Look at how awesome this is and this is great. And so yeah. you really don't get, I'm the same way and I don't get a full picture. And things, I, I'm trying to figure out different language than, like, good or bad because I think that's not, it's... It's more complex than that, but there's, uh, it takes a while to see the things that aren't, um, as, that don't serve, you know, as well, or, or, are hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me anyway, too, it's like, I'll always be like, this is so great from the beginning. I just like, think everybody is yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it looks so good. Uh, and then you it's find great. out later, like, oh, this might not be great Shoot. in some ways. <laughs> yeah. In all the ways. And that's okay. Like nothing is ever the best. Right. But um but yeah, you have to be you have to be in it to yeah. see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that's hard. You know, it's, it's also hard when you're just like fully in it to like step back. Yeah. That's really hard. That mm -hmm. takes a lot of work and a lot of processing um to be in a situation whether that's in a farm situation or not, you know, mm -hmm. to be in a situation maybe recognize that there might be a problem or something that's triggering something and to be able to step back and be like okay uh i feel this way <laughs> is that good mm -hmm. you know should i be feeling this way or should this be happening you know asking those questions to yourself even is is a lot and it's hard to get through but mm -hmm. um coming on the other side being on the other side in many different times it is a good thing yeah <laughs> it's great yeah <laughs> um yeah so keep going with this, uh, to keep going with this cooperativeness, uh, you worked on farms that were market-based and also not market-based. Mm -hmm. So that saying it's market-based or not is really comes down to the economics and the finance. Mm -hmm. Um, how do, how did that differ, yeah. uh, in that economic viewpoint? So like, and that, that was like, um, Laminga at the beginning was, a market farm and that we needed to make money so we were putting money and we were putting sweat equity so like labor into it and the expectation was that it would be returned in the form of dollars yeah <laughs> and um 
what we found was like it and i think that there are many examples of that being successful um and it is successful right now currently for the farmer that's still farming under the laminga name um but that to make that work in capitalism for a cooperative group of people is a long road to because you have to get those systems down and you have to figure out how much how many potatoes do we need to grow every year in order to um support everybody on this farm and the other conversation that we never had at laminga that we now wish that we would have had is how much money does everybody really need that conversations about equity um and that to so many people all of us who were brought up in capitalist america are like wait everybody gets eight dollars an hour and which is such a shitty wage for everybody yeah yeah (laughs) um nobody deserves eight dollars yeah (laughs) but uh it, and like the idea that like somebody might get paid more um, and it wouldn't be just because they are have more degrees or they worked harder or whatever um, or more qualified um, and they might get paid more because they're coming to the table with less because of systemic oppression is like totally yeah. <laughs> mind-blowing oh my um, totally. but and we all agree that that we actually sort of adopted a model like that at the end of our our tenure as a market farm and that worked out pretty well um actually like we're saying okay well you know people that have families and people that are (laughs) victims of systemic oppression need to have more money from this farm that's like yeah you know that's reparations right there low-key like we're trying (laughs) we're trying to yeah you know make things equitable yeah um what that project then turned into was, okay, This we can't make this work because this is for people against the system. Right. <laughs> and um, it's <laughs> the not working. The entire system, yeah. Yeah, and so, and like, you know, we're all having to find other work to make up for it and we just don't have the, we don't have the time to grow this market farm. So we turned it into that subsistence farm that I was talking about where, um, and it took a lot of the pressure off because we were no longer growing for market, so we didn't need perfect tomatoes, and we didn't need. That's, that's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like um, to have we we were, were depending on the yield because we were going to eat it, and we were able to grow enough food where it made a significant. It was sig- economically significant for the people that participated, but it, um, their investment wasn't a lot. We probably met two days a week and then those mm. of us there were some more we had about 10 households in it yeah. so it was, I mean, that's super similar to the corcomero yeah 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 and um but the people you know who had a little bit more farming experience we did a little bit more work but it was we still had you know our full-time jobs and it was fine and so that was like that was pretty cool um so did each of you put in money to the farm um, or was it, like, you said it was equitable, so those who could put money into the farm, did they, like, was, how did that come to fruition? Were they, like, you know, you mentioned a John Deere tractor or something. Yeah. You know, did they, were they able to, oh, you know, we need, we need this, you know, tiller or whatever, this machine, this thing that costs, you know, $500, mm-hmm. and they have $500 plus, and some of the people don't, um... Like, is that kind of how that worked out, or...? Well, yeah, so that was where it got really complicated, was that we did need those things. We were lucky in that we were getting the opportunity to farm the land because this family had agreed that this was what they were going to 
repurposed the land for. And then the plot in the city, the city had purpose repurposed that land for urban agriculture. And so we didn't have yeah. to pay for it. Yeah. Um, so we really just had to pay for water and for, you know, really just had to pay. We had to pay for a lot of stuff, water, um, seeds and all the other stuff and then tools. Um, and so because we came to it and we weren't really thinking about equity at the beginning, what it started out at first was like, oh, the person that bought the tractor was going to get paid more money, take a bigger share because that person had invested more capital. But what we realized was, well, that person ha had that capital because they were like in a privileged position to have access to like essentially like inherited money mm. and that the other people in the cooperative would never have been able had the opportunity to generate enough money to buy a tractor because they'd been you know in the system <laughs> their whole yeah. Oppressed. and we're yeah, yeah oppressed so we had to reframe the conversation about well how much money does everybody get um and that, that was really hard but it was really good. Like we all sat down. It was one of those conversations you're talking about where it's like, okay, like we just had to put yeah. it all out there. Like person A dropped like this much skrill on a tractor and like yeah. they're like, I'm trying to like pay myself back for that. Yeah. And person B is like, uh, I wish I had enough money to buy a tractor. Like I'm out there working as hard as you, but also like I got to leave to like take care of my family and you don't have a family. So like, yeah. Now what do like, we value here? Yeah. Do we value like money or do we value like supporting each other in this cooperative or can we value both at the same time right um and we kind of you know it it was like a tense conversation but it ended up good in that we all agreed on the amount of money that we would take every week um and we felt like it was fair so that's and that all, would that'll that's look all you different. can really do yeah yeah it'll look different for every group um but it's like yeah that was like something that yeah i wish we would have done at the very beginning um and it's good that we did it when we did it but uh, it would have been a lot easier for sure. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, it's hard because everybody wants to, you know, have some financial freedoms mm -hmm. if that is even a, possible, um, and to farm. Uh, and so many people work multiple jobs and also farm. Yeah. And I think just making known that that's okay. Mm-hmm. I know we've both farmed and worked in the services industry and now don't because COVID. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, but it's, you know, it's, it's interesting and it's hard. And it's great to hear that, um, you know, the farm you worked at could do the things that like have those conversations mm -hmm. and get that started. Um, cause not everybody can do that and that's okay. But maybe you just understand that, it should happen and get there when you can. <laughs> yeah. Well, and for, uh, you know, people who are listening to this that are interested in, like, cooperative stuff, one of the people and farms that are doing oh, some really cool work um, in cooperative farming is Soul Fire Farm. We've talked about them. And, mm -hmm. and Leah Penniman, she, in an interview that I was listening to recently, was like, you, everybody knows that, like, farmers have a side hustle, right? Like, it's... Yeah. Like, it's because, you know, we don't value <laughs> our culture, doesn't value organic, sustainably grown food. Yeah. Um, because of, like, the giant agro economy, and, which is, a, you know, another episode some yeah. other day. But we'll get there. Um, but it's so, yeah, it's super normal for yeah. um, 
small farms to have a side hustle because it's just not sustainable. Yeah. And I love that you brought up Leah because Soulfire is great. I love their farm and I love everything that they're doing. They have so many great resources for people um, of all types to get involved and especially folks in the BIPOC community. Um, They specifically focus on that community and going back to their roots of farming and Mm -hmm. understanding that and working on that together, Mm -hmm. which is really, really great. Um, And it's great that that's they've been able to get a lot of money um, because at the end of the day, yes, we, everybody needs money. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd still live in this society where we need money. I, I wish I could just frolic off into the forest and be okay, but I can't. Yeah. <laughs> we can't. <laughs> I mean, maybe it depends on the person, but, uh, yeah. Most people can't. <laughs> yeah, most people can't. And so, uh, that's great that they've been able to have some finance, um, in their life to do what they want to do and help them keep doing the great things that they're doing. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I can't think of any other, uh, like, m- bigger mainstream cooperative farms than Soulfire, like, that comes to mind. I mean, I've, I know of some random communities here and there, but nothing that really has a big social presence and has a big, um, education. Um, I talked with, uh, Amber Learman. She was the first, like, interview podcast on here, and she works with the Kansas Permaculture Institute. Um, and they're not... Permaculture is cooperative. Mm-hmm. Like, it is one of their main, uh, it's not as, like, cooperative as maybe cooperative farming, but cooperativeness is definitely in their roots. And, uh, they provide a lot of education, uh, in this if you're looking for something more in the Kansas community. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, which is great. Yeah. Check it out. We've already, t- I've already talked about it, but <laughs> check, out, check out that podcast if yeah. you want to listen to it. Episode one, y'all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but going, I guess this kind of involves permaculture a little bit, but, um, the soil and land management, that's a big, it's a big topic. Um, and I feel like we could have a podcast just about talking about how to steward the land. Um, and the listeners, if they listened to the last um, episode, I met with Courtney Masterson, and she is a really great um, ecologist um, that works on specifically prairie restoration and land restoration. And I've had the joy and pleasure of working with her and talking with her and doing tons of stuff in the community. Uh, she recently had a seed collection um, like volunteer day. And so she works and she also does, uh, like ecology or environmental education. And, um, sorry. Uh, and so, yeah, I guess I'll start this off by like talking about, um, just land management in general Mm -hmm. and soil management and how this relates to, I mean, Cooperative or non-cooperative farming, uh, folks should be taking care of the soil. Mm -hmm. And if you think about, um, a plant growing, you know, okay, my favorite plant is kale because it's great. Um, and it's just, it's, it's so great. I don't need to explain my love for kale. Maybe I'll, I'll, maybe I'll explain it one day, but, um, it's really great. And, um, you can, so you have this kale plant, right? You, it's a seedling, you put it in the ground in the soil, cover it up, water it, and then it grows, and you take food from it, and it's really great. And then maybe the next year, it you 
uh, don't do anything to the soil, winter happens, and then you plant it in the same area, and maybe it doesn't grow that well. Um, there's so many, there's so many different things that can go and talk about why it's not growing very well, but I think a main, uh, in, within that little snippet of that cycle of this kale plant that is not mentioned but should be done is the land, the soil restoration when that plant is done. So you, the kale plant is done, you pull it up and I think a good step, now this is just me personally and what I know and the education that I have of permaculture and farming is to like maybe a good step one is to cover crop. Uh, and cover crops uh, are really good for you know adding nitrogen or uh, other nutrients into the soil and then you can cover crop it and either leave it or you can cover it with a tarp and the tarp will then break it down and put that nutrients into the soil and then you can plant back into it. Um, but I think this idea of soil management is not talked about a lot, um, especially online when you look at very popular farms. Um, maybe, I mean, Connor Crickmore talks about it all the time. Mm -hmm. I've never seen uh, farms. Uh, but it's in order to get this beautiful, fruitful tomato or kale plant or even flower, uh, the soil needs to be helped because <laughs> you're just taking from it. You know, you're just taking, 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 uh, and not bringing anything back is not going to be in your favor. <laughs> um, how do you, how do you feel about that? Well, I think like a good analogy and the, the analogy that I've like used with kids when I taught like gardening to kids was like, if you think about plants as sentient beings, I don't think I used the term sentient beings with yeah. children, but I, if you think about them as like, you know, they have, wisdom. they're alive. Yeah. They have, they have wisdom. Yeah. They do. Um, they need things to survive just like we need things to survive. And when you put one in a spot, it's going to take all the things out of that spot that it needs to survive. That's just like if like you put a person in a house and you fill up the refrigerator, they're going to eat right food in the refrigerator. Right. And then if, you know, the person moves out of that house and a new person moves in, and then what's the, what are they going to find in the refrigerator? They're not going to find anything. But somebody already ate it, so that person is not going to do as well um, <laughs> as yeah. the first one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but even in organic farming, like, like you said, the first time I ever even started to think about soil management, like I even, like, I taught this to kids. Like, I taught them that plants need nitrogen. That's how they grow. That's what they use to make, you know, their plant bodies bigger. Right. But I didn't think, like, oh, there's natural ways to encourage that that don't involve putting fertilizer down. Um, and that that's what we did in, in New Mexico, and that's just how it was done in the 60s when Farmer Daniel came up in organic farming, and he's just, that's how he... That's how he still does it, and that's... That's how he rolled. That's how he rolled, and that's okay. Um, and that's how some of the farmers at Laminga came... That's their their perspective, and the, the only farmer that didn't have that perspective was a farmer who had come from El Salvador, and he was like, that's not how we <laughs> how you do, do something. Yeah. Um, and what I realized was that indigenous farming practices have those systems in place 
that managed soil already. Mm -hmm. Like that's just a part of the process. Um, and that, you know, modern organic farming doesn't necessarily, um, like it's not necessarily an integral part of the day-to-day -day structure of the farm. It can be like never sink farm, you know, you mentioned I, they're, they're big proponents of like soil health, but, um, not all organic farms are about that. Yeah. And I think at, at some of the scales that these farms are operating on, it is, it is really hard to be about that. And that is why you need a group of people to be doing yeah. it together. It's yeah. so much easier to do, to do these hard things like restoring land, which is a very time and resource intensive process. Yes. If you are doing it cooperatively, than if it's just one person trying to do it, mm. you have, you know, yeah, one or two people trying to just farm and do all the other things that you need to do to make a farm successful for whatever. I think because soil isn't something you can look at. I mean, you can look at dirt, but you can't see that it's, you know, dank or totally depleted. Right. <laughs> so it just sort of falls on the, on the wayside. Yeah. But it really is probably the most important thing. And I think just it's hard for some farmers, to, you know, they want to do everything that they can. And I, I understand that. And I, I feel that like energy that they have going through some of those things. And it's, it's just hard to do everything, especially if you're in a non-cooperative sense of like, I, oh my gosh, you know, I have to do this, I have to plant this and blah, blah, blah. this goes on, especially uh, when you're rotating crops and most vegetable farmers have, you know, a dozen or so crops that they're uh, selling, mm -hmm. maybe more. Um, and so it's hard to, um, you know, be on top of everything. And I think thinking about the negatives of not what happens when you don't restore the soil, um, can, you know, if you think about that more than the good things, you know, it's important to think about the good things. And I know we both like to think about the bright side, Yeah. but if you think about, you know, if you don't restore the land, uh, or cover crop or, you know, that's just one method of dealing with it. Um, that's just very common you know, you can have tons of erosion happen. Erosion would mean that your crops are going to get washed away. <laughs> That's money getting washed away, yeah. potentially, if you're thinking in that way. Uh, food not being accessible because it's getting washed away. <laughs> you know, Literally it's gone. Literally, the of inaccessible. You, yeah, it got washed gone. away. <laughs> it's gone. You know, it's in the creek. <laughs> you know, it's, it's out of here. And, like... You know, that's one big thing is erosion is a big problem. And our soil is already being, like, the, the topsoil is already being depleted just from monocrop farms and this and that. And so it's really important to bring back um, plants uh, that can, like, die there. You know, there's mm -hmm. so much death and also so much life in farming. Mm -hmm. And um, to put good things on the ground to prevent uh, negative things in the future from happening. Tons of bacteria and worms and just stuff can accumulate if you don't uh, do things to the soil and then can just continue on from year to year to year. And it's like, oh, why isn't this, you know, why isn't this plant producing in the way that it should? It's like, well, you know, maybe this wasn't, uh, it wasn't the, you didn't even know that there's an issue and then the issue comes to place and it wasn't, you know, it's different. One, it's difficult to deal with issues like that, but um, just making sure to be on top of that. Uh, and letting, also letting the land rest mm -hmm. is so important. And I know that we kind of talked about that with the Cork and Barrel uh, Garden. Yeah. Is that they've done a really good job of resting mm -hmm. the beds. And I think that that resting rotation um, is hard. And 
uh, can be done on large scales. Mm -hmm. um, it just takes the planning and organization. Yeah. And sometimes that's hard because farmers are overwhelmed. Yeah. It's really, like, I think it's really hard for farmers to think about, yeah, the broader... Like, it's, it, it's a funny paradox because I think a lot of them go into it because they do have, like, notions of, like, being, you know, stewarding land and environmental... Yeah, doing good things for the environment. But yeah. then, then you get into it and it's, it's just stressful in some ways that you just can't think about the long term. Yeah. You can only think about the short term. Yeah, and what's in front of you, not what's underneath you. Yeah. Yeah, what you're, what you're walking on <laughs> Yeah, is, is so, so important. Um, yeah, I mean, and some, you know, I think it's also okay to accept that tilling and no-tilling is both sides are okay, mm -hmm. and that, um, honestly, especially where we're at with the amount of monocrop farms that we have that till and just, you know, just, just take so much from land, and, you know, some of them do cover crop, and that's great. I think most of them do, but, you know, it's still just the same monocrop, which is not the best, um, but I think... Uh, there are some times where, you know, you, you gotta till, especially if it's like a clay soil or it's never been worked on, mm -hmm. you know, that's, it's okay. And it's okay for people to, like, it's okay to feel weird about it. And it's also okay to do it anyways. <laughs> yeah, there's this book, um, I think it might be right next to you actually, that on some, I really enjoyed learning about permaculture from you because I don't know, I don't have a background in it. Um, and, but in this book, the, the author speaks to the point of, if you need to use gasoline to power the tiller, to till the bed, that then for the next 50 years, you're going to no-till, that's yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like, it's about the end game, and that, right. and it, it go, goes back to that point of, like, thinking about long-term. Yeah. You know, it's not all, like, this is right and this is wrong, it's, like, what makes the most sense for this land and the people that are using it, and... Right. At this moment. Right. And, and what will make the sense for the people that will be continue to use it. Right. Later. And you know, we're not we we are, even though we've talked shit on uh, capitalism, like we are in a world that has access to machinery like that mm -hmm. and trucks and uh, just whatever. And sometimes it's great to utilize that. Yeah. And sometimes it's super helpful and will like super help you out in the long run. Um, and even though that's not especially, like, a, uh, practice, obviously, that's been done for years and years by, um, the indigenous people of this land, um, but we're working with what we got, and there's been a lot of time in between their farming and ours now that has created it to be the way that it is now, mm -hmm. um, which stinks. But yeah, it's like it's twenty twenty, not, not you know? an overnight fix for sure. Yeah, and I think that it's just I think the important thing is, anytime you do something, it's like what is my intention, and if the intention is aligned with, especially if you're working in a cooperative, if you're doing something in a cooperative and everybody agrees, okay, this is like we're gonna do this. This is what the group agrees on, and if the intention is aligned with good land stewardship even if you know that's okay <laughs> like if it, yeah. it doesn't necessarily look like the perfect permaculture farm yeah and i think i mean just with that maybe on the last note of this topic but um it, it's okay if your garden box garden uh garden just any garden space isn't perfect because i feel like 
there's greenwashing and farming of like, oh man, you know, like this area is perfect, you know, and sometimes it's not, you know, and that's cool. Uh, And you can still, there's, I mean, there's a lot to say with perfection and imperfection, especially if it comes to like weeds is Mm -hmm. really what makes it not perfect. Um, But I think that, you know, we're all doing the best that we can and that's okay. Yeah. And whether you have weeds or not, that's okay. Totally. Do what you got to do. You'll be fine. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe we can have our last note here um, of just what what we've learned from cooperative farming and the advice that we can give to people who, um, like future farmers or people who want to get into this into this field, into this area. If yeah. You want me to start? I can. Um, Unless you have something off the tip of your tongue. Yeah, why don't you start? <laughs> okay. Yeah, future farmers. Yeah. Um, so I think what I've learned from uh, getting involved in the cooperative community, whether that's cooperative housing or farming or just farming in general, I think what I've learned over the years is positive communication will get you everywhere. And... If there is a problem, uh, take a step back, think about it, and then address the problem um, if, if you feel comfortable doing so. Because letter, letting little things fester frequently um, and a lot will is not going to feel good. Nobody, nobody's yeah. having fun Nobody wants when that's that. happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so trying to deal, it's really uncomfortable. It makes you feel weird. Sometimes there's some anxiety and stress. But just being able to um, speak how you feel and uh, have those conversations is so much more important. I mean, your mental health is important. I'm not saying that. But it's so important to the whole structure of what you're doing. Um, And that will really make it a whole lot easier for you and for everybody else. And just... You know, positive communication on that front is just, it just makes the world go round. Mm-hmm. Um, and some advice that I have for future farmers is uh, to ask questions and to go to the farm and to talk to previous farmers that have farmed there and why they left, why, um, why they've stayed. Um, and, you know, you have the right and the ability to ask the questions. Um and that's totally okay, and especially if it seems like cr- a crazy question to be asked. If it's something that you would like to know, like, ask. <laughs> Hopefully they'll give you the answer and the right answer. Um, because I think both of us have gotten into weird situations. Um, and in the, you know, in this world and uh, communication and asking questions and figuring out the situation at hand, uh, before you, like, dive your whole entire life into it is, uh, is something that I didn't do and will now continue to do moving forward. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you on, like, I don't have very, anything very much different to say. I think that Mm -hmm. the communication thing, I just want to, like, echo that because it is 
so important and I want to say that it is hard and then you just have to know that when you do it that it's just going to be hard but that it's so important um and then the other thing is i like for people who are interested in farming i would say get a lot of different experience and be open so you know you might work at a farm one season and then try it like a different farm um in maybe the same region or maybe go to a different region and try a different farm i think that it it's a Farming is something that you gain a body of knowledge um, on over time, and there's some things you can learn from just like reading some books and figuring some things out. But most of it, the experiences, a lot of the of it, is about and is an experiential process. Becoming yes. a farmer, very hands-on. Yeah, it's a it's a physical thing. So yeah, um, that's what I would say. Is like try to try to be open and. You know, if you can, like, work at two different farms in the same place, that's really kind of a nice thing to be able to do to compare. Yeah. If you got the opportunity to do that. And yeah. You got to see, like, things you liked at both farms. Yeah. and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, one last question. I forgot to preface this before. I know you haven't been in Kansas that long. Yeah. Um, and But I know you've had some good times here. Yeah. Because we live in the prairie. And I like to ask everybody at the end of the podcast, what is your favorite prairie moment that you've had here thus far? Well, I haven't been here that long, but I also, like, had to be okay. Like, I, I did, around June, I was like, I have to, I live in Kansas. <laughs> yeah. I have to, like, learn to love, I'm going to, like, very quickly learn to love this place so that I uh, am not a jerk to be around. Yeah. So I've been on some really great hikes. Um, and like I made it a point to kind of do that this summer and, um, the Flint Hills, I think are, I've just been to some spots in the Flint Hills that are really like, um, pretty magical and beautiful. And so, um, yeah, I think that I would, I went hiking in a, in the Flint Hills on the solstice and that was probably has been my favorite prairie moment. And I also, one thing that's cool about this region is that it is so unlike any, region that I've ever been to and so I really don't I know a lot about eastern deciduous forests like that's where I sort of studied uh, that ecosystem in college because I went to school in Michigan and then lived in Kentucky which is the same thing and then I know a little bit about mon mountain ecosystems living out there and then I got here yeah. and I was like oh this is a completely different world yeah um and it's really interesting um to learn about it totally so yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, well, I think that concludes our conversation. Maybe more to come later. Who knows? Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, so if if you're open to people looking more into your day-to-day -day life, where what can they do to do that if you're open to it? Uh, I You can holler me on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably the only... I have, like, a Facebook, but I don't. Probably won't accept your friend request. Yeah, that's fine. I think that's <laughs> um, exactly. I wouldn't either. My, so. <laughs> mostly because I have like I a bunch of former students that are, all, and so I never know when there's like, I don't know. I mean, I remember their first names, but I forget their last names, and I'm like, who is this? And it's probably a student, and I don't want to go there. Yeah, um, it's okay. Instagram's cool. So yeah, my Instagram is Natty Hub, and so if you guys want to um, follow me, you can. I'm <laughs> Check out just, your bus stuff. I'm kind of just <laughs> posting pictures about my bus and. And also reposting a lot of, like, calls to action 
for justice for Breonna Taylor because I'm from Louisville and I'm, my heart is breaking over that. So you can get yeah. some info about that. I think that's shitty situation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, hopefully listeners can check you out and yeah, enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for chatting with me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Cooking up a fire. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Prairie Ramblings podcast. Hope you were able to enjoy this week's episode. If you have a desire, please feel free to like and share this episode with some like-minded individuals, as well as leaving a review or a comment would be very helpful and very much appreciated. A special thanks to Austin at Nessera Studios for helping produce this podcast, as well as Anchor for being a great medium for finding like other like-minded individuals on the internet. All right. Thanks again and have a great rest of your day. See ya.